in the text of Scripture today, Acts chapter 4. As we enter into this great passage, I'd like you to imagine yourself seated on a warm summer night at the Lake Harriet Bandshell in Minneapolis. On the stage, an orchestra is warming up for a concert. And there's all the chaotic sounds that continue to play, but then you notice that there's three violinists who put their heads together, and they begin to tune their instruments to one another. Behind them, there's several trumpet players that get together with a few flautists, and they begin to tune their instruments to a rather pompous oboe player. And here and there across the stage, you see the same thing playing out. Instruments tuning with the people next to them. The conductor's embarrassingly late and bounds out across the stage and mounts the platform and lifts his arms. And before you know it, the concert has begun. And there are these highly trained orchestra members playing with great skill to the best of their ability. But as you sit there and hear it, it sounds awful. Something is desperately wrong. It sounds awful because the individual instruments were not tuned to a single instrument, which served as a unifying standard for them. It's only as each instrument is tuned to one standard pitch that they can possibly synchronize with one another to make beautiful music. And this is really how it is with the church of Jesus Christ as well. Churches that unite together to make beautiful, healthy music that wins the lost and strengthens believers never achieve this grace by merely tuning themselves haphazardly to one another. Local churches are vibrantly unified only when each member tunes his or her passions and purposes to Jesus Christ alone. And we find this principle played out so clearly before us in the text that is here today. We have two fairly distinct pictures in the latter half of Acts chapter 4 as we work our way through it. But I think this binds them together. We find here believers who are tuning their hearts, their passions, and their purposes to Christ, and thereby unifying with one another in very unique ways. It's been a few weeks. Let's remember the context. Jesus has recently been executed in this city of Jerusalem. He is risen from the dead. He has appeared to His disciples over a 40-day period of time as He teaches them about the kingdom of God and teaches them how to understand Scripture and to interpret it from a Christ-centered perspective. He has then ascended into heaven and He has poured out His Spirit upon this small band of disciples And filled with the Spirit of God in a unique way, they speak in tongues to people who hear the message and respond as 2,000 are saved and join the infant church. Acts chapter 3 starts on a fairly mundane note. Peter and John are coming to the temple to pray at the evening time of prayer. And as they're passing through the beautiful gate on the eastern side there, there is a man that is lame from birth who's begging alms. And remember, Peter raises this man up by reaching down and picking him up, and he is instantaneously, indisputably healed. In Acts chapter 4, 
The followers of Jesus get their first taste of opposition. Peter and John are arrested for their efforts to heal this man. They are imprisoned that night. And the next day, these rough-hewn followers of Jesus are hauled in before the Sanhedrin. If we could only picture that. Peter and John, simple men, standing before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court in Israel. Seventy-one men in a semicircle seated around them as they stand and give account. And this Sanhedrin, these powerful men in the capital city of Jerusalem surrounding these two say, don't ever talk about Jesus again in our city. Verse 18 of chapter 4, just to remind ourselves, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. With integrity, they say, not going to happen. We're going to follow the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will speak in His name. For the man on whom, in verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Instantaneous, complete, absolute, indisputable. But they want them to stop speaking in the name of Christ. And these men are powerful men. Now, we know how the story turns out. We know where things head from there. They don't. This is a serious problem. Their lives are in jeopardy. How will the infant church filter this experience? We see a little bit of an evidence of it as we see Peter standing there before them and saying, we will continue to speak in the name of Christ. He says it graciously, respectfully, but he stands against them. But how will the church respond? Will they splinter off into various factions, disparate factions imploding as a church as they argue about what they are to do? Will they slink away? And just forget the whole thing. Their response to this persecution will set precedent. And the only healthy and unifying response is for them to tune their spirits and their passions to the purposes of Jesus Christ. And that is gloriously what they do. We see here two very unusual scenes of unusual unity and of unusual response to difficulties. Oppression, opposition in the first scene and financial trial in the second scene. We find this group of believers united, first of all, in prayer, beginning at verse 23. They are tuned to the agenda of their sovereign God in this prayer. Think of it as they face this trial and as they gather for prayer before the Lord. Verse 23 reads that when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. We notice that Peter and John immediately seek support from and fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. But what does that say? Peter and John are not macho men. They're not lone rangers who steal their jaws and stoically plow on without communicating. To the contrary, they realize this is not about them. This is about Jesus. Neither do they come whimpering 
to these friends, seeking support to bolster their weak hearts. This is about Jesus. They come to report to the church what has happened and the status of the cause of Christ. We have raised this man up, this man who was lame, but we have faced opposition. In fact, we've been imprisoned, and they've told us to never speak in his name again. In humility, they gather with the disciples to alert them to the trouble that they've suffered. Not to brag, not for sympathy, not in panic, but as is indicated in what follows for prayer. Verse 24, and when they heard it. Now this isn't good news. When they hear it, this tough news, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's stop and think of that. It could have started on a lot of places, but first they gathered together. The Greek phrase could be translated with one mind. They gather with one mind. Their spirits are tuned to a biblical vision of God. They don't splinter from this place with all kinds of different ideas about what to do because their focus is on the Lord. They are not, as we say sometimes, freaking out here. They're not arguing over what to do. There's no God-blaming perspective that takes place here. But they interpret what has happened to them from a distinctly biblical frame of mind. It starts with this call, Sovereign Lord. Think of the biblical foundation on which they pray. The sovereign authority of God. They're saying here something like, Lord, we've just run into a heap of trouble with the powerful Sanhedrin, but we are praying to you, the Lord of the universe. Knowing the reigning authority of Jesus over all earthly powers, they appeal to the one who has commissioned them to be apostles. These people are giving us trouble, but you've given us this commission. Sovereign Lord, we appeal to you. We're not going to obey the Sanhedrin. We have told them this, but we need you to aid us in the proclamation of the gospel. They believe in the sovereign authority of God. Secondly, we notice here that they believe in the God of natural revelation, verse 24. I don't think it's a mistake that they're appealing to the God who has created heaven and earth. There is no higher authority in the universe than the one who made it. We find, thirdly, that this prayer is based on the belief that God is a God of written revelation. Verse verse 25, "...who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit..." God is communicating through David to God's people and is saying, here's Psalm 2, "...why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain?" The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. God, this is what Your Word has said. Interesting quotation here. We have the Psalm of David, Psalm 2. The enemies of God had lined up against the Israeli king. The anointed one was David. And the enemies of God had raged against the purposes of God and were attacking David. David is calling out, why is this the case? Why do these powers assemble against your anointed one? But beyond David, this psalm points prophetically to Messiah, to David's greater son, who will receive the ultimate rage of the nations against him. This Messiah, this anointed one, has also been resisted 
Indeed, the believers are praying here something like this. This mindless, raging, mad plot against Messiah continues. And we are now players in this drama. They're quoting Scripture. They're quoting prophetic establishment of the trials they've run into and of the crucifixion of Messiah. They're joining with this God of written revelation who knows all. And He is, number four, in their prayer, the God of providence. Verse 27, For truly they continue to pray. In this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Herod, Herod Antipas, the one before whom Jesus stood and said nothing. The one that killed John the Baptist. He was in Jerusalem the day that Jesus died. Pontius Pilate, we know of his work. But coupled to these two, who didn't get along at all before this trial of Jesus, were the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The people of Israel. All joining together, plotting together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they gather together these disparate authorities and they rage against the purposes of God. They bear their chests against the speeding locomotive of God's saving purposes. And they stand up and scream, no. But all of this is taking place according to the purpose of God. He's not wringing His hands in heaven. He's not coming up with plan B now that they have done this. Actually, verse 28 says to do, that is, they are doing, they did, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now let's read this carefully and thoughtfully. The most sinister, unjust, vile crime that has ever been committed in the history of the universe was when people took the holy, flawless, sinless Son of God and killed Him. No greater injustice or horrifying crime has ever been or ever will be committed. But this crime was according to God's hand. According to the plan that He had predestined to take place. Now in my nature, I'd like to read this differently. I'd like to read this out of the text, perhaps. We might think of it in different terms, or it certainly could be said differently than that. That's not how these believers are praying. They're praying that it is the hand of God and the predestined purposes of God that led these men to do what they did. Now, let's hasten to say, these evil men acted willingly. They will be held accountable for their crimes, Acts 2, 22 and 23. But God was neither surprised by their crimes against Jesus... Nor did he merely respond to what these rulers chose to do. It's not God responding to what they planned. It's these individuals acting according to the predetermined plan of God. That's how these believers pray. The text makes clear God is not the one adjusting his plan, but they are willingly carrying out what God intended. God is free from their sin. They are accountable for their sin, but God is not working on plan B here. They did what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is rock-solid biblical theology about who God is. Think of this prayer. 
A prayer that knows of the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. A prayer that knows that He is a God of natural revelation, the one who has brought the world into existence. A prayer that knows that He is a God of written revelation, that there are no mistakes That there is no time when God is fooled that indeed prophetically there has been all along this idea of persecution of God's chosen people until the end. And this God of providence. All things taking place according to His plan. This is a deep prayer. It's a deep theology upon which this prayer is based. It is precisely tuned to who God is precisely tuned to the music of this rich theological perspective on reality, the disciples now present their petition. Verse 29. They're tuned to who God is. They are also tuned to the God-honoring desires, as we see in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's an amazing prayer. They do not pray that God will destroy their enemies. They do not pray that they'll get a free pass out of persecution. In light of the Sanhedrin's authoritative call to cease speaking about Jesus, they pray that the sovereign will of the Lord would be that they continue to speak with boldness. It'd be easy for them to sort of slink away in prayer. God, please look on what we've done and please take note and please reward your servants for having suffered this. And in the unstated part of their prayer, it's, and we're going to back away from this project because it's dangerous and we don't like it, but aren't you glad that we've done what we've done here? There's none of that. They stick their necks out and say, God, give us boldness to keep preaching. Boldness, an amazing Greek word as it was used in that day, not merely of courage, but of the freedom and the resolve to say precisely the right thing. Give us the boldness and the courage and the opportunity to say precisely the right thing about Jesus continually. We need that power. We need that strength from you. We want to continue your agenda. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand, they continue in petition, to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The purpose of these signs and wonders is to authenticate the message of the apostles. This is not the apostles praying, please give us the ability to work all kinds of fireworks so people notice us. Or some way that we can work a miracle to set these people down. It's not destructive miracles they're looking for. It's healing. It's the power to say the message is true. Let me take a quick sideline for some that want to take a break and others follow me here quickly. But John Wimber, mid-1980s, wrote two books, Power Evangelism and Power Healing. Wimber would look at this passage and say, this is exactly the way it is to be today. We should, as a church, be praying that we would be working continually and routinely all kinds of miracles, that people would see those miracles and come to faith in Christ. It's a popular, popular literature. It was his thesis that miraculous wonders are a universal method to advancing the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel. He argued that the kingdom of God arrived in Jesus and that part of the agenda of the kingdom of God is to remove the curse from this world. And one of the ways to remove the curse is to heal. 
to work wonders and signs that, for instance, a man that is born lame and walks is a removal of the curse that has resulted from sin. Jesus came, established His kingdom, and is carrying out this healing purpose. Miracles, then, are designed by God to be the means by which the gospel is spread. They are to be routine. They are to be abundant. They are God's plan for evangelism. I do not break with Wimber at this point in my belief of miracles. I praise God for anybody in this day writing a book that believes in miracles. Because God works signs and wonders. He works miracles. And we praise Him for that. We do not look at this text and kind of get embarrassed by it and pretend that it didn't happen and they didn't work miracles. They work miracles. Now there's an issue with the nature of the miracles that they worked. We won't even get into that, but let me just look at a couple other things that deal precisely with Wimber. His view suffers, I think, from what we might call an over-realized eschatology. That is, he has too much of the already of the kingdom of God and not enough of the not yet when it comes to the kingdom of God. Secondly, I would say that miracles are, by definition, rare. They're miracles. There's no evidence in the New Testament that the New Testament church ever viewed as organic to the evangelistic effort these miracles. That they were organic to the evangelistic method. There's also a problem with this view historically. The season of miracles during the apostolic era was historically unique. And I think even just by observation, we could say that the vast majority of people that have been born again since the apostolic era have witnessed no miracles. They haven't responded to a miracle. They've responded to the gospel. And the vast majority since the time of Christ to this day would not give the testimony that I saw someone healed miraculously in an unimpeachable way, an indisputable miracle that was a complete and thorough miracle. When I saw that miracle, then I responded to the gospel. If this is Jesus' plan, it really seems confusing that through so many centuries this plan has not been worked. So coming back onto the trail here, we would not deny that miracles took place here. We would have concern with the nature of those miracles, the fact that they were always indisputable and complete. But we would also struggle, I would certainly struggle, with the concept that to win people to Christ, we need to be miracle workers. And that people need to see ongoing, repetitive miracles, and that through these miracles, the church will be built up. All that is needed for the salvation of the lost is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin, and Jesus rose in victory over death. You may see a miracle in order to come to Christ as Savior, but the only miracle you have to see is that Jesus defeated death. And if you believe that historical truth, and you come to place your faith in what Jesus did to defeat death, that's all the miracle you need to be born again. And that is the testimony of the vast number of believers through history. So we honor verse 30. We take it as a true and genuine petition of God. We don't take it as normative for the method of evangelism in our day. It is by faith. It is by hearing the word of Christ that faith comes. And we press that agenda to the end. If God does a miracle, 
Let him do the miracle. We won't resist it. But I don't think we go about trying to produce them and pleading with God to do miracles so that people are saved. Back on the trail. When they had prayed, verse 31, God roars his approval. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God shakes the place where they were gathered to indicate His presence, and He renders the disciples unshakable uh, in the face of persecution. They're filled with the Spirit, not baptized in the Spirit as in Acts 2. This is a distinct work of the Spirit. In Acts 2, they were baptized, they were indwelt by the Spirit of God. Here they are filled by the Spirit of God, emboldened, empowered to speak the truth of God at just the right time with clarity and courage. What what do you see here? I mean, from one level, this is just a narrative that just describes what happened. And there might be something of a struggle for us to apply what happened here because it's clearly a unique situation. And we praise God for it. We believe that the place shook with the presence of God. But what does that have to do with us? Our prayer closets and our church building don't generally shake when we pray. I think it has much to do with us because what we see here is a body of believers who are tuned to the pitch of God's agenda. They do not come in prayer before God whimpering. They do not come in prayer before God seeking their own agenda. These are not prayers of desperation and panic. They're not prayers of self-pity and depression. These are prayers asking for the courage to keep working for Jesus to keep doing what Jesus is doing to save souls. I think what their prayer is really epitomized in the Spirit of Christ Himself, who said in the garden, remember, not my will, but yours be done. Here's the appeal to the Sovereign Lord. The appeal to the One who can give boldness in the face of opposition. Not my will, but yours be done, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed at the end of His life, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. These people, tuned to the agenda of God, pray the same thing. Let us fulfill the work that you've given us to do. Give us boldness to carry on the message. This whole thing is your plan. We're part of that plan. Give us strength not to run away from it. Because we are intimidated. The Sanhedrin's an intimidating bunch of men. And they're the power in this town. Will you give us boldness? Yes, I will, says God. I think it's certainly true that one of the reasons that local churches in our culture struggle with maturity and struggle indeed with unity is because we do not suffer much for Christ. When the bullets of persecution start flying, a church finds out quite quickly who is for real and who shares God's agenda. But at any rate, we will never experience a united front in prayer unless we share these same theological underpinnings. Even if we just take it figuratively for application to us, the church will not be shaken by the answer of God in prayer unless we're tuned to these theological moorings, to embrace these basic truths about God. And without them, we don't have a prayer. In the midst of spiritual battle, we will not pray well. 
We will not depend upon God as we should. We will remain unfruitful. Without this biblical perspective, we will not witness for Christ and we will not battle in prayer in behalf of the lost. Tuning our lives to ourselves and our friends and our agendas of this world, we will remain detached from God's agenda. We will remain disunified from one another. We will remain out of sync with the purposes and the passions of God. And we will not know the joy of united prayer. In a different context, but in, on the theme of prayer, D.A. Carson writes this well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all our praying must be a biblical vision. That vision embraces who God is. What He has done. Who we are. Where we are going. What we must value and cherish That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward hearty echoing of the church's ongoing cry, even so come, Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that, and here's the key, listen, so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that concern the heart of God. I wonder about your prayers and mine, about the prayers of this church as we gather together. Is it clear in our prayers that what concerns us is what concerns God? That we are uniting in prayer together because we are pleading for the agenda of God to be carried forward because there is nothing that means anything more to us in this world. There are churches that do not need to rely upon God because they're not in a spiritual battle from their perspective. They are, but they don't realize it. They're not doing anything in the realm of spiritual battle. So they don't need to unite in prayer. They do not need to plead with God for justice because their representation of Jesus creates no enemies. They do not plead for God's intervention in united prayer because they are doing quite right, all right without God. They might ask God to intervene when their agenda is not being accomplished. Really, as long as God is helping me to build my financial standing and He's allowing me to live within a family, or something of the like, He's allowing me to pursue the pleasures of my life, I just really just assume God left me alone. And so I'll thank Him for the blessings that He pours upon my life, but there is no sense of the agenda of God that leads to emboldened, passionate prayer that seeks to unite with others who share the same passion. not consumed with the lordship of Jesus Christ, nor with the work that He's doing in this world to call people to His saving grace, such churches discern no reason to tune their hearts to God's agenda. May that never be us. And may increasing proportion we present something very different. A passion for the purposes of God that unite us together. 
But when a community of believers is hardwired to God's agenda, such thinking binds them together in other unusual ways. We have here united in prayer, tuned to the divine plan. But we see then, secondly, in this passage in in Acts chapter 4, the believers united in care. They are tuned to the needs of the family of God. When God's agenda is your agenda, it has very significant implications to how you treat one another. Verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. One heart and one soul. They were tuned to God's agenda. They shared one mind. They weren't serving their purposes. They weren't looking at their own particular agenda, but above all at God's and thereby united with one another. If Jesus died to save the brothers and sisters in Christ, these disciples were bound and determined to live for those brothers and sisters in Christ. The agenda of God overwhelmed their natural possessiveness and greed so that they had everything in common. Now, I think that's hyperbole. The text will bear this out. It's exaggeration. Basically, what it means is nobody had any need because they were so loving toward one another with their gifts that they helped each other and removed all need. Now, it's, as John Stott puts it well, I don't know if these are exactly his words, but he said it well. This is not the situation a what-is-yours-is-everyone's arrangement. This is a spirit-filled what-is-mine-is-yours arrangement. That makes sense? Not what-is-yours-is-everyone's, but what-is-mine-is-yours. They were free to withhold whatever they desired to hold and to give whatever they desired to give, but they looked around at a situation and said, we're going to give. We're going to make sure that no one among the followers of Jesus Christ has any need. This was not an arrangement where the diligent, the energetic, the industrious were angered and the lazy were jumping up and down with glee. This is not the arrangement either. We must also add here that times were very difficult in Jerusalem. Remember Dr. Bookman talking to us about the differences between Judea, Jerusalem, and and Galilee, for instance. Much more fertile in Galilee, and farming and fishing was much better there. He probably had somewhere in the range of 85% of Israelites would have been living basically day by day, hand to mouth, just trying to eke out a living. This is a tough place to live. And some of them have perhaps even left farming and fishing from the region of Galilee and around as they come to Pentecost and they haven't gone home. But on top of all that, there's a famine. There's great economic crisis here. It is very difficult to get employment. And there are believers who are in legitimate need. Think of how your mind must be set on the purpose of God to take your hard-earned money, your Land that you've been sitting on as an investment to sell it off and to give it so that your brothers and sisters in Christ are fed. There's a certain kind of hard attitude that is necessary for such action. And that marks these people. Along with this, verse 33, we find with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Grace to lead them to give of their wealth, to help their brothers and sisters. Grace to speak with boldness the truth of Christ. God is answering the prayer that they've just offered in the 
previous verses. They're tuned to God's agenda, and so their outreach and their mutual care for one another unites them together. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The Greek verbs are beyond what we can translate in English, but they speak here of an ongoing process. As Bach puts, it was a gradual, we're looking here at a gradual liquidation of assets, not the selling of everything all at once. This practice did not continue. Indeed, later in the book of Acts, there will be Gentile churches that have to gather a huge sum of money to send to Jerusalem so that this church can be preserved. One notable example of this tremendous giving, this attitude of generosity, is found in a man named Joseph, verse 36, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, he's an Israelite, he is a native of Cyprus, part of the diaspora, living outside of Jerusalem, but now here, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He's a son of encouragement. A man of great encouragement to the assembly because his mind was so set and so tuned to the agenda of God that he gave of himself to meet the needs of this assembly. Very few people, probably in this setting, would have had land to sell. But this man sells this land and gives it away to care for the daily needs of God's people. Critics say, well, they all felt that Jesus was coming They're giving away all their wealth because they know that in a few days or a few weeks, Jesus is going to come back. I don't think there's any indication of that. They believe Jesus could come at any time. But I don't think there's any sense that they are just divesting themselves of all assets because of the belief that Jesus is going to come and they won't need it. They're divesting themselves of wealth because they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're dealing with what they have today to meet the needs of today in the lives of those who embrace Christ with them. And perhaps more on that next week, according to God's will, as we look further at Barnabas and what he has done here. We can spend a lot of time in this text saying why it doesn't apply to us. The situation is different, circumstances are different, and that's all true. But we can also fail to face the reality that a vibrant relationship with Christ creates a unique relationship with God's people. It creates a heart of generosity. It creates a desire to see money stockpiled not privately, but in the church, in the right sense of the term, to bring it together that it might be used in the cause of Christ. We witness in Acts 4 what Dennis Johnson calls an attitude of partnership, a bias towards sharing with needy Christians. Their hearts, he writes, were tuned, were turned inside out from protective selfishness to risky liberality. I trust it's not hard at all for us to read this text and to be convicted But I'd like to look at it from another perspective and to give God praise for this assembly and the continual evidence of the grace of God in our lives to care for the needs of one another. God has led this church to help people in some unique ways. 
to put our arms around those within our assembly and other believers who are in great need and to help. We must do more. We do not have an attitude of grace that is anything near commendable. But on the other hand, it is a joy to see this grace continue among us. To see people caring for others and pouring out their wealth to be of assistance to others. And I say that because no community of believers is going to reach the lost that does not nurture an environment of mutual support and love for one another. And so in one sense of the term, I mean, witness is with our words. Ultimately, that's what matters. But every time we love one another, every time we buck our politicized and warring culture with acts of love and self-sacrifice, we make a direct investment in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say with that act, we are different. We think differently because of what Christ has done for us. And without tooting our own horn here in this place, there are some of those acts that are so encouraging among us as a church. Quiet acts of help and support and love that say other people matter to God and so they matter to us. If we love Jesus, we will love the lost and we will witness the truth of salvation to them. But if we love Jesus, we will also love one another, witnessing the reconciling love of God to a watching world. So in light of these two scenes, where we see these believers whose hearts are tuned to God and to His agenda, does it mark us? Are we tuned? Are you tuned to the agenda of God? Do you realize that He is working in this world to reach unbelievers for His name? That He is working through His people to benefit and aid and bless His people in need? Do we see this? If we do, one of the evidences is going to be rich communal prayers uttered in dependence upon God with a passion to fulfill His purposes on earth. As I gather with God's people for prayer, I can say honestly that that agenda drives me. I can't tell you how many times I leave for Wednesday night and go, I really want to stay home tonight. I'll admit that. I'd really like to go to bed earlier. I'd really not to put forth this effort. But when I come on Wednesday nights, I'm thrilled to say there's other believers out there who know the agenda of God and I want to get with them. I want to beseech God together in prayer as a body. When we pray together on Sundays, this is a time of rejoicing for us. We're bringing our private prayers together as a church to say the agenda of God matters. And as it matters, our prayers will be richer and fuller. I really don't look forward physically to the all-night prayer meeting coming here in January. But I look forward to the agenda I look forward so much to us coming together as a church and to beseech God with united heart that He would work through this church to His glory and to His honor. Does this bind us together? Is it our personal agendas or is it God's agenda that unites us? If it's God's, we will see united, vibrant, unified prayers. If not, this is not the agenda that unites us, We will show evidence of the love of money. We will show evidence of sibling rivalry. We will show evidence of a concern only for our own agenda. And maybe I speak to someone here who says, you know, honestly speaking, that is where I'm at. I want money. 
I want things. I'm not looking for ways and reasons and opportunities to give. I'm looking for ways to keep and gain and get so that I can buy what I want to buy and be peaceful and comfortable in my own little world. That's what I really want in this life. And maybe you honestly would say with that, I really don't care about God's agenda. If things go well in my life, I'm happy to do whatever I need to do to pray and ask God to keep the blessings flowing, but I really don't care about His agenda. I've got my agenda. That's who I honestly am. Let me say to you honestly in the basis of this, on the authority of this passage, that you are raging against God. You are joining the authorities of this world that are screaming in opposition to God. You might say, I don't sense that. I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm in any rebellion against God. If your mind and heart, passions and purposes are not set to God's agenda, you are raging against Him. And the thing that will prove that is someday when your agenda doesn't work and you'll turn on God. If you're in that mode today, there is only one thing ahead, and that is judgment. But this is the good news, that God's grace has reached every single sinner in exactly that condition. Wholeheartedly self-centered. Wholeheartedly loving the idols of this world, including money and ease and children and family and, and all of the good things of this life that we grab onto. Every one of us is in a state of idolatry by nature. But in his rescuing effort, God has sent Jesus Christ to die and pay the penalty of our sin and our rebellion against God such that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be rescued from self and idols and will be given new life in Christ. New life that's going to blow you away. Life that's going to lead you to do weird things like care about what God's doing in this world, setting your own agenda and your own personal interests aside to serve that cause. It's going to lead you to do weird things like giving away wealth to help somebody in need. But it will be the source of great joy, of great gladness, when you come to know I'm reconciled with God. And because I so believe in the eternity that He has secured for me, I can hold this world very loosely. I can give. I can pour out my life in the cause of another. And in doing that, we find what life really is. We find the joy that God intends to give us through faith in Him. Let's bow together in prayer. We ask that You would come, Thou fount of every blessing, and tune our hearts to sing Your praise. If there is anyone here that maybe even unknowingly is raging against You, Through private agenda, I pray that you'd break the cold heart and bring them in repentance and faith to Jesus today. I pray for those of us who have submitted to your call upon our lives and have yielded to the grace of God, receiving Christ as our Savior. I pray, dear God, that you would bend our hearts and minds and passions and purposes to fulfill your agenda. We pray this with all of our heart and soul. And ask God that you would move us and use us, that we might unite together as a church 
around your purposes and your agenda and the needs that surround us in this dying world. We pray this sincerely and ask that you would shake us with a sense of your presence. In Christ's name I pray, amen.